Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases. And 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, Auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The year is 2014. And after almost a decade of flops, Keanu is thinking... Yeah, I'm back. The movie, John Wick. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear, and this is the podcast where we look back on films that are supposed to be classics, and we ask the question, are they really that good? Or are they just remembered that way? I, of course, am a film critic. I write for the New York Times. And I'm Paul Shear, just a lover of film, a lover of John Wick, and a lover of gold coins. And today we are talking about John Wick, but Amy, before we begin, it's a little bittersweet because... We had planned recording this episode before we found out about Lance Reddick. And Lance obviously has a very big part of the John Wick world. Uh, We get to see him just a little bit here. But, you know, he's somebody that I've worked with uh, a lot over the last handful of years and is just an incredibly kind, loving, and also hilarious person. I was saying to a friend this weekend that he brought as much gravitas to silly comedy as he did to drama. And you can see in John Wick, even with the small amount of time that he's on screen, it really is attention getting. Like you want to know more about this character. Yeah. No, I mean, as somebody who never got to know him in person, as somebody who just only got to know him through his movies and through his CV, of course, he had one of those presences that you always noticed when he came on screen. You know, he was a great character actor, but he also was a great character actor that you always noticed it was him. And you're like, oh, there's Lance. I'm so excited. And he would always do this magic trick he did of like bringing this like gravitas and this intelligence to all of his performances. And yeah, we only get a little taste of him here in Wick. He magnifies as a character in terms of being the dog walker, the man who like really cares about 
taking care of the nice things in, in John Wick's life, the, the perfect concierge, but that just absolute sense of calm stability he brings to this film that is so chaotic in so many ways is invaluable. And I love the fact that the producers of the film have dedicated John Wick 4 to uh, Lance. You know, Lance is such an amazing person and I became a fan of him on The Wire. I love that character. I love the emotional depth that that character was shown as the series went on. And when I finally got to work with him, I was a little afraid because I thought, oh my gosh, here's a very serious actor. I, I, I just want to make sure that he understands comedy. And what I found was he is a complete and total nerd. And I mean that in the best way. Like he loved anime and he loved video games and he loved all this stuff that I loved and and especially comedy. And that's why I think you've seen him pop up in so many funny, weird comedy things because he was just so game. And when he would come to set, he would not only come to set prepared, but with questions and thinking about everything in a level that you never would even assume that he would go. And then embrace everyone around him. He was the guy who came to rap parties, uh, wanted to be involved, called for questions. And whenever I got a a call from Lance, it was just put a smile on my face. Um, Just a sweet, lovely guy and and much love to his wife, Stephanie, and his children, um, who I can't imagine uh, what they're going through right now. He was way too young. And uh, we're lucky to have this amount of work to look back on that I think will be timeless. And I think that's part of the conversation today about John Wick and how it's had this lasting effect. And, you know, and and obviously this character of Sharon, you know, how he just started off very small. And like you said, Amy, and really became a part of this tapestry that we're about to talk about. What must it be like, Paul, to have told a joke to Lance in person and made him laugh? Oh, Lance made me laugh. I don't even think I made Lance <laughs> laugh. I mean, I remember that we cast him as this um, like crazed Guy Fieri in NTSF, and he just went balls to the wall, just loved it. And I think he loved poking holes in an image that he had. I, I recently just was talking about him on a casting call the other day. I wanted to cast him in something new. But I even called him up to do a... Um, to play Tyrese in a Fast and Furious parody table read. And he was like, I'm in. And he killed it. Oh, always, always killed it. I couldn't recommend him more. And if you really want to see like the comedy of Lance um, next to the fantastic drama, I highly recommend watching Corporate, a Comedy Central show that he was phenomenal on. Um, it was truly just a amazing performance. Um, so, you know, I hate I hate saying stuff like this, but rest in peace, Lance. Um, and, uh, you know, we will always have you in our cinematic hearts. You know, in addition to Lance, we'll also be talking about a lot of things in this John Wick world. Part of the reason why we picked John Wick was to, again, right after Creed, look at this uh, end of a franchise or continuation of a franchise. Like, these movies have been around for a very long time. And I guess the question is, why? What did this franchise do so well that when you look at the way people respond to them, each film, people love more and more? To look at the building of a franchise, I think is interesting for better and for worse, for better and for worse. I am going back to John Wick with a touch of reluctance that I will admit to you right now, but I will say I was glad to rewatch this film. You know, what I really love about this film is 
how small it is. I think when you think about John Wick, you think about this giant fight movie, but the first one really is a lot more personal. And I think in a way that is maybe the best way to launch something that becomes so globally big. Are we talking about, you know, our version of the Hobbit? Is John Wick, our Bilbo, going to Mount Doom to kind of cleanse himself of all of his sins? I've lost the metaphor, but you know what? I'll never lose the Baba Yaga man. Baba Yaga man. Okay, if you're starting this podcast off on mortar, I think we should just go ahead. Okay, so without any further ado, Baba Yaga man, unspool it. The year is 2014, and Keanu Reeves is in a world of pain. It's been six years since his last big studio movie. That was 2008's The Day the Earth Stood Still. Remember that one? No, you don't, because it was a flop. And it's over a decade since his last legitimate hit as Neo in the third Matrix movie. Remember how we all love that one? No, we didn't. Okay, is Keanu over? I mean, we don't know. So Keanu kind of just changes direction. He invests everything in becoming a director, spending years on his passion project, Man of Tai Chi. And guess what? It flops too. All right, Keanu is becoming a meme. He's sad Keanu on a bench. He's anything but a money-making movie star. However, Keanu reads a lot of scripts. And one day he reads a script by this unproven writer, Derek Colstead, who, like him, has been kicking around forever without a hit. The script is called Scorn, and it is about a septuagenarian hitman who comes out of a quarter-century-long retirement when goons kill his beloved 17-year-old dog. Keanu reads this script and he's like, well, I'm not in my 70s. I'm not Clint Eastwood, who this was clearly written for. But there's something in this world that I respect, this formality of talk, this way of setting up a world. So he says, hey, maybe you age this movie down for me. And maybe for the action scenes, you hire these stunt guys, David Leach and Chad Selesky, who I worked with on The Matrix. And maybe if David and Chad want to, maybe they should direct. And David and Chad do direct. It's their first feature as directors, although Chad gets the actual screen credit. It's a weird DJ rule. And then Chad and David have a lot of ideas. You know, why doesn't this movie have a ton of style and long, long shots that emphasize the stunt work, which we know we can do? And why don't we multiply its body count from 11-ish to 84? And why not, instead of the goons killing this old guy's old dog, we kill a young guy's motherfucking puppy? Is that too much? It might be too much. We're going to kill the puppy anyway. John Wick comes out on October 4th, 2014, and it holds on to a 100% Rotten Tomatoes score for a while. It is called John Wick, by the way, because Keanu thinks that the title Scorn is stupid. He's not wrong. So when he gives interviews, he just keeps calling it John Wick, and eventually the producers just go along. We're getting free publicity. He's calling it John Wick. The movie is John Wick. And the movie's practical action style, it just feels fresh in a world where everything is artificial CG. And Keanu in this movie feels like a real actor again. He's got something close to gravitas. John Wick is a hit. So like Cree last week, it is a hit. Yeah, Amy, this is the rebirth of Keanu, right? Because he does this film that all of a sudden becomes its own franchise. And, and it starts to build sequels. And the question becomes, how does this keep on becoming interesting and not get too tired of itself, like the way the Creed has done too. How do we keep on building on what we started? Yeah, exactly. How can something come along 
revolutionize a movie genre that we are familiar with, hitman movies, boxing movies, and then try to stay fresh, right? How yeah. does the fresh stay fresh? Not to fall in that Matrix trap, which he's already been in, right? Because if you think about Matrix, by the time that third one came around, we were disappointed. And I think that maybe that's the greatest lesson that Keanu Reeves has as he goes into this new franchise. How do I keep upping the stakes? And he's got a question for me, which is, what was on the radio that weekend in 2014 anyway, when John Wick came out? And I would have to say, Keanu, to be honest with you, it's a song that doesn't really seem to have that much connection to John Wick until I really was like, I'm going to listen to these lyrics closely. And when I did, I realized that the one and only Megan Trainer is also like Keanu, like David, like Chad, using this platform to salute her appreciation for what is real over what is fake. Yes, it is all about that base. I love it. I love a connection as loose as it can possibly be, but I still love it. Uh, I will tell you, I've been thinking a lot about Megan Trainer and this song because I have been listening to the Doughboys, another great podcast about uh, podcast. fast food, and and uh, they are rating bowls for Munch Madness. I'm going to be on an episode of Munch Madness, and uh, one of the ratings is, you know, the Megan Trainer. Like, what is the bass? All about that bass. Do we like the bass? Do we not like the bass? You know, bless her. When you come up with something that catchy. It just works for everything. I love it. Amy, <laughs> um, so let's talk about John Wick. You mentioned that John Wick kept its 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes for a long time. And I have to say, going back to rewatch John Wick, I hadn't seen it in quite some time. And I think what I was really struck by was how this movie is truly a film about grieving. I remember seeing John Wick in the theater and just being completely blown away and I think what I remember and probably what most people remember about John Wick is the incredible fights. And when you think about the franchise, you just think about those moments, those visuals. But rewatching it, what I forgot about was this emotional component that this movie has. The first 30 minutes before any bodies drop besides his wife from cancer is this kind of beautiful meditation on grief. And I really was taken aback by that. Like, this movie takes its time. It feels like an independent movie that then becomes a full-blown, you know, action film. But that first 30 minutes, that those moments to kind of understand Keanu and why he's doing this and where he's at emotionally, I think not only ground this film kind of ground this entire franchise. Like, we really get a giant buy-in from moment one. I struggle a little with the beginning of okay, this yeah. film, to be honest. I mean, it does open, yeah, right, very solemnly, almost like a black and white film. There's barely any colors in the movie. Yeah. It's like, it's really stark. There's a moment where it sort of gradually turns a little beige, but it is a very, very blunt, almost Swedish-looking kind of movie for a long time. Here is where I have to admit a couple things. Like, one, I was a little slow to come to the John Wick franchise. Okay. Because, you know, when you're a critic, you get a lot of emails. Oh, go see this. Oh, go see this. Oh, go see this. One of the genres I tend to turn out is Hitman movies. Yeah, I'm just like, oh, my God, there's so many of them. You know, like, while we're going to, while we're doing this podcast, I'm probably going to get, like, 
four more emails about Hitman movies I should go see. Well, but is that because of this movie or before this movie? Before. I would okay. say Hitmen are just so common, right? Right. And it is rare to find a good Hitman movie. So when I do, I'm always like, whoa. Uh, so this movie coming in, being a Hitman movie, being a Keanu Reeves movie, didn't really flag my interest uh, for a while until people that I love, like uh, the critic Stephanie Zaharik, which is all in on John Wick. I remember when she wrote a poem about how much she loved John Wick when we were doing Slate Movie Club. They do this like annual movie thing where we talk about, we write epistolary overblown letters back and forth for a while. And when in that year, she and I were doing it together. And she wrote, you know, this ballad of John Wick where she had stanzas like, John's tale may be bitter and harsh. Yes, it's gritty, but the ending is happy. He rescues a pity. And I thought, fuck, Stephanie, fine. I'll go back and revisit this movie. And then when I did, I immediately was like, Oh no, why did I bother in these first two minutes? Because the second type of movie that I really don't like is movies where there's a lovely already dead wife who's like on a beach looking beautiful, having her hair float in the air and being absolutely boring. Like, I, I, I guess she dies of cancer. If she died of terminal dullness, I'd be like, sure. Oh, you don't even get a chance to really understand her. I mean, yeah, okay. And I will say, I'm confessing all of this to you openly right now, up at the top. Because I know that it's impossible to have a hard and fast rule about anything in this world. There are good movies about hitmen. There have been times I've walked out of movies because I got there, they started, they were about dead wives, and I was just like, oh, I'm not in the mood for this. Like Universal Soldier 3. I actually have heard that I would, would love Universal Soldier 3, but all the dead wife stuff at the beginning, I was like, can't do it, and I left the theater. You were heard that you would like Universal Soldier 3. Like, who yes. is telling you you're going to like US 3? my boyfriend okay wow wow okay <laughs> he did show me a clip later like this year out of context and i was like i do like that clip that's pretty cool uh, but like a dead wife things dead kid things it's not that i think that they are so sad i can't watch them it's not like does the dog I got that. Right. appropriate for this it's just like i'm over it i even had to watch arrival twice because i was like Ugh, a dead kid thing and i just immediately shut down so it's Partially me. So you don't like an emotional cliff note, right? Like, I think we talked about this with Creed as well. Like, you don't like the very black and white, here's an emotional thing. He's got cancer. A wife is dead. A child is in danger. You don't like that. You want a slightly more elevated uh, bit of emotional drama. Yeah, maybe I'm a bad person. So I'm just no, like, you're not. dead kid, who cares? But like, oh, oh, and dead kid at the ending. That's just like the worst of all. Oh my God, why am I moping around for two hours? My kid's dead, I'll tell you in the last five minutes. Oh God, worst movie ever. Well, that's one movie. It's so many movies. It's that not said, so like, many movies. It's one movie that like you particularly don't like. There's like the Angelina one. Yes, that's that the, the one. That's the one that you don't like. And yes, but, <laughs> but I will say this. I hear what you're saying. Yeah. I think that where this movie kind of skirts it is it's automatically a little bit different in the sense that we don't see his wife tragically die. And I don't mean that in a way where it's like she's not killed in a, you know, in a cross gunfire. It seems to me like she had been dying. We catch up with her after she has passed there. And we just are basically watching this man grieve, but it it's not like the movie started and it happened. You know, I, I feel like sometimes there's an emotional uh, thing that they can do where introduce a character, kill them off to make you feel. But here we're meeting the character pretty much at the funeral. Like we're meeting him there. Like that's how we're introduced. That's the the reason for the season in a way. Like that's where he is. That's what makes him go back. That's what almost makes him be as reckless as he is. 
That's true. That is a better choice. But still. <laughs> like, okay. You, know, you just, you have a hard and fast rule about hitmen and dead people. It's just like, and this is no, no shade on Bridget Moynihan. You know, it's, it's the character. Well, that's she has written. nothing to do. She has nothing to do with it. She has nothing to do with it. And one of the things that I kind of like about her is, you know, she said to everybody when she did interviews for the movie, I didn't even read the script because I just thought it would be better for me to love this character, John Wick, if I didn't. I think that the relationship that Helen and John had was one of complete compatibility. It seems like there are two people who... um, get extreme pleasure from each other on a lot of different levels, but also respect each other's quiet time and privacy. She also says that interview that she thinks like Helen and John Wick, you know, Helen being the character's name, were really compatible in their own way, which I have a hard time buying even watching this film several times, you know? And then, and I just, oh, the letter she writes to him about how she hopes he finds peace. John, I'm sorry I can't be there for you. But you still need something, someone to love. So start with this, because the card doesn't count. I love you, John. This illness has loomed over us for a long time. And now that I have found my peace, find yours. Until that day, your best friend, Helen. And then I feel bad for her because it's like he never gets peace because of this dog. But but all of that, half is on me, half is just on me being kind of sick of this thing. But I have to say... The foundational trauma of John Wick has never really hit me because I kind of can't imagine these people being a couple anyway. Not even the dog. The dog doesn't hit you? The dog's cute. I like the dog. The dog is really cute. But he only gets like a day with the dog. So it's also hard for me to care that much about the dog. Oh my gosh. This, I mean, I don't want to make this whole podcast about the first 30 minutes, but I may have to dig in here and just say what I really think is great about this film in many ways is what we don't know. And this movie sets a lot of things in motion without explaining them. That's that's a thing that I really appreciate as a viewer in the sense that we are introduced to the Hotel the Continental, the gold coins, this kind of old school New York, very much like um, steampunky assassin world, but Not every beat of it is explained. This is a story that is in motion from moment one, and you have to kind of pick up on what that is. I think the second film did an amazing job at opening up that world a lot wider. I think when you watch this film, you see an independent film. This feels like an independent film. It feels small. The fight scenes seem contained. And you can see, obviously, through the course of the next three films, how much bigger it gets and how much more expansive the world becomes. But what I really like about this movie is it takes really bold choices. It also, I think, doesn't go out of its way to tell you, is John Wick a good guy or a bad guy? That's not part of this equation. John Wick is a man who is mourning not only his wife, but the last thing that his wife gave him. And I think that you know, a lot of people say like, oh yeah, it's just about a dead dog. But what that dog means. No, I do have a, a little bit to say about how that dog was given to him. Like, all right, so the wife is on her deathbed. She's like, I'm picking out a dog. What does she tell her friend? Like, okay, you hold on to the dog until I die. And then here's a note and then you deliver it. But don't you do, don't deliver it. 
we'll get a delivery service to deliver it. Like, it's so complicated how that dog gets there. And also, Keanu's reaction, like, I didn't order a dog. Like, he just takes that dog in immediately as someone who was gifted a dog. Um, it's a very, it's, it's not something you should ever gift. So I automatically am against the wife for gifting a dog. But I will say there's a, a guy who I think we can all identify with who's in the throes of a dark, deep depression, who then has a moment of brightness by this cute little puppy. And whether or not he knows that puppy for a day, a week, five years, it doesn't make a difference. It's just a sign from beyond the grave that she was thinking about him and it's his connection to her. So it's almost as if the dog is killing her again. Like it, she gets killed again. And the movie never... Yeah, like he gets to kind of even make that point, you know, when, when Vigo is like, but it was just a dog. Right. John Wick. <sighs> Baba Yaga. It was just a fucking car, just a fucking dog. Just a dog. Vigo. Yeah. When Ellen died, I lost everything. Until that dog arrived on my doorstep. A final gift for my wife. In that moment, I received some semblance of hope. An opportunity to grieve unalone. And your son took that from me. Stole that from me. Killed that from me! That simplicity, that kind of just... A to B thinking is what I love about this movie because we don't have to ever ask ourselves the question of, is he truly reformed? Is he a good guy? Did he get out for the right reasons? Did he get out for the wrong reasons? We don't know. We don't care. The only thing that we really get from him is this is a different John Wick than most people know. When that bartender sees him at the Continental, she's like, oh my God, you seem vulnerable. Like, you know, there is something about him that has changed but the movie doesn't bend over backwards to say like, I didn't like this job. I never wanted this job. I was forced into it. He is a killing machine. We don't know how he became a killing machine. We don't care how he became a killing machine. He just is. And then he took a break, got married and was happy. There's something about the cleanness of that that I just absolutely love. I wonder how they met, like yoga? Well, I wonder if they met and then he got out or if, he got out and then met her. Who knows? I mean, he, I feel like he met her and then he got out so he could be with her and marry her. And that's the best part of this. We don't have to take on any of this baggage because. But we kind of do because it's so foundational. I feel like, OK, I feel like we kind of I feel like the movie, the solemnity, the black and white, the the Bergman of it all wants us to take it a little bit seriously as a foundational Yes. Trauma for John Wick. And I have a hard time doing with that. And I just want to say, you know, a few things. It's like, I don't care about John Wick's wife. And in a way. But you want, yet you want to know more about her. And in a way, I, I don't care about John Wick. And like the person. And in a way, I don't care too much about the puppy. Very cute puppy. Good beagle. I do feel like his wife picking out like a beagle puppy is sort of like, does she know him? He seems like an old hunting dog type to me. But that said, whatever. Cute puppy. Eight weeks old. Played by a puppy named Andy. What I do like, however, is everything that happens once the dog dies. Like, I love that this movie has the guts to kill the puppy. I respect that. Yes. And... The puppy just wasn't injured. I really love what happens once the dog is dead. Because I think that 
what I love about John Wick. I know I'm sounding like I hate John Wick. What I do like about John Wick is the expansion of the world that comes once the dog is dead. You know, like yes. the grounding never works for me, but the expansion is fascinating. And I love how this movie kind of trickles it out slowly in the way that you're describing. I agree with you on all of that. I mean, John Wick, this dog, it's hard not to like him and this dog just sharing scenes together. John Wick feeding him cereal. You know, even just seeing like Keanu himself hang out with puppies. Very adorable. Very adorable. I think it's like BuzzFeed takes advantage of that all the time. Hi, I'm Keanu Reeves. I'm uh, here with BuzzFeed to play with some puppies and answer some questions. Thank you. I mean, some funny things about like these dog scenes with like him and the puppy are that Keanu had to smear bacon grease on his beard to get the dog to want to hang out with him. And that when they have that scene that I find a little bit unnecessary where they're like, the dog's in his yard and it pooped. The the dog poop cost them $5,000 to create through CG because they, you know, would not let them give laxatives to the puppy is how it was explained. Can't they just get it from somebody else? Yeah, I don't know why you couldn't use old poop or I had to make it. I don't the rules of poop, I don't I don't know why it couldn't be fake poop. I don't know why it had to be CG poop. But all of that said, as much as I gripe, I do sort of buy the moment where John Wick is thinking about his wife, he's thinking about his dog, and he does cry. Even though I don't love the writing of this, I do respect the moment where like Keanu is reading his wife's kind of stilted letter and bursts into tears. <laughs> those count of tears. I think they're good tears. What do you think? I do like those tears. I think that the reason why I connect with this character, why I feel like it's real. And, you know, obviously Keanu was made fun of a lot as he was a younger actor as being a bad actor. I think that that narrative has changed a lot. Um, but he's somebody who's lived through some really traumatic things, you know, whether it was, you know, the loss of his child, uh, the loss of his girlfriend, his sister's sickness uh, with leukemia. He has had some things that I can't help but think played a part in embodying this character, this this grief-stricken character who, you know, he's talked about this grief period in his life where he really was like living in hotels and, and isolated himself from the world. So I think that when we're watching this, and I know it's a big old dumb action movie, there is something incredibly personal about it as well. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 
Okay, let me ask you two questions and then we'll get off the dog of it okay. all. We can't get off the dog. They killed his dog. Do you think that the dog crawled its way over to him or those gangsters picked up the dead dog and dropped it in front of his face? I think they dropped the dog in front of his face. Oh, man, that makes me even more angry. And the reason why I ask you this is because I know you say you don't care about John Wick. And I think that that's actually kind of okay. Is it okay? I feel like the movie acts like I'm supposed to care. No, I think it's okay because John Wick, in my opinion, John Wick is supposed to be us. And yes, we're not killing machines. We don't live in this world. But it's such a core thing to identify with. And I go back to that idea, like he is grieving. We've all experienced loss on some level. We've all experienced the recklessness that comes with loss or the depression. You know, some people, they eat. Some people do things that are dangerous. Some people just try to change everything about their lives. And what we are watching here is a man backsliding. Yes, he's getting revenge, but the core, and this is what I think is so good about it, the core is so simple and it makes him relatable. And that's why I think John Wick is a great character. Yes, he's a killer and an amazing martial artist and he's amazing with guns and weapons and all these other things. But we understand without any hesitation, without any doubt, why he is doing what he is doing and we see ourselves in him. Because if someone, Amy, killed your cat, put that cat in front of your face and you went off on a killing spree, we'd be like, we get it. We I could probably it. kill at least one person that they killed my cat and put it in front of me. I probably could. I probably could. And Amy, I don't know if this has ever been said in the history of movies, but they just messed with the wrong guy. Have they ever said that in a movie? Have they ever said that on a movie poster? <laughs> I don't know, but it sounds really good. But that's the premise, right? I mean, I'm with you on the tidiness of the story construction, right? Because in this first third, it's really neat. He buries his wife. He buries his dog. He unburies his guns. And my boyfriend loves to say that, like, when the moment comes that John Wick breaks up into his, like, gun cellar and, like, smashes his gun grave and disinters his guns, that it's, like, the most literal representation of a script that just breaks into act two. And I think that's really true. I think it is very neatly constructed in that way. But I will just say kind of overall of John Wick, of the very first John Wickiness of this film, I think that the script maybe could have done just, I don't know, another pass, a little bit of polishing on the aging down of John Wick because I didn't know this story about how it was written for like a Clint Eastwood type until we were prepared for this. But it has always kind of confused me watching this movie. Like he seems really young to have killed so many people and have given it up and have gotten married. And it's confusing to me that like, you know, Vigo, uh, the character that we have played by Michael Nyquist, kind of our big bad, knows everything about him, is responsible for John Wick getting out. He worked for Vigo for years, but Vigo's son, who is not young-ish, you know, probably early 20s, Alfie Allen, Yosef, has no idea who John Wick is, and it's all coincidence. And I'm like, how does that work? Like, wouldn't, wouldn't he have just, like, seen John Wick around, blah, blah, blah? And to me, that only makes sense if he had been retired for 25 years, instead of, I don't know how long he could have even been retired here for. Four years. It's been four years. So I buy that that character didn't know him or see him because I also feel like there's a lot of turnover in this business. I think of John Wick as, you know, someone like Allen Iverson. You know, Allen Iverson played from like 96 to 2010, you know, like I feel like he had a good run. 
And now he's retired. He's in his mid-30s, uh, and he's retired. Like, like most great basketball players, not LeBron. Well, maybe even LeBron. Like, he did his job and got out. And I also believe that character, that son, um, feels young enough to feel like he wasn't a part of the family business at that point. Like, I mean, he, I believe that, but John Wick is not Allen Iverson. John Wick is LeBron in the way that everybody sure. talks to him. He is the LeBron of killing him. So that's like, that's like my dad manages the Lakers and I don't know LeBron plays for them. Your son knows who's on every team. Yes, but that's televised. I mean, like we're like we're talking about assassins. I, again, <laughs> I just think that the world that we are talking about, the Continental Hotel, there seems to be a lot of assassins in that hotel. Seems to be a lot of people in there doing their own work, different people killing different things. I'm just saying I buy it. Sure, I hear what you're saying, but we don't really need more than that because everybody else knows who John Wick is. Everybody knows who John Wick is. And yes, it probably makes more sense that Wilm Dafoe, like Wilm Dafoe to me feels like you could have had that Clint Eastwood Wilm Dafoe like they were brothers. But I also like the idea that Wilm Dafoe has kind of his, always been his guardian angel. Maybe a guy who brought him in and has been protecting him, has been behind him. So I love that relationship. And when you first meet Wilm Dafoe, it's hard not to think of him as anything but a villain, unless you're watching The Florida Project. Even in that, the first couple of minutes, I'm like, is he going to kill everybody in this hotel? But, um, you know, you meet him. It's to see putting bedbugs in people's mattresses one by one to chase them out. And, and I think the movie even lets you kind of wonder if he's good or bad for a very, very long time, probably up until the he's spying on the Perkins fight. To me, everybody's bad. These are fucking straight up cold killers. Like, I, there's a moment in this film when I was watching the the fight scene in this spa or the, the Russian bath, like that whole sequence. John Wick is killing so many people, people that don't even know that he's in the room. And I just was thinking like this poor motherfucker, like just got shot in the head. How quick life is just extinguished for him by association, right? They, they, these people didn't do anything wrong. So just simply because of that, John Wick is a bad dude. Like John Wick isn't just attacking people who are attacking him. He is basically killing everyone who gets in his way. He's basically killing anybody who accidentally wore a red shirt and a black blazer to, to this nightclub, which is, I love kind of the, the bad guys have a uniform, I guess. Like it's like a TGI Friday. It's like, okay, we got to wear our red shirt and black blazer to the club so that John Wick knows how to kill in the middle of chaos. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm saying that sounding like I'm here to bury John Wick. I'm not here to bury John Wick. I love John Wick too. I love John Wick too. I love John Wick 2, I'm here. Not also the sequel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the sequel. Um, but I love John Wick 2 because it feels like it expands on my favorite parts of John Wick to me, which is just Absolutely. entering this universe. And I mean, let's 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 play the clip where I feel like we enter the universe, right? Because like we get these sort of rumblings that John Wick is maybe not exactly this grieving widower only. Like he's at the he's at the the gas station. He knows Russian. You're like, oh, that's interesting. He knows Russian. Oh, he, he expresses his anger through Tokyo drifting with a puppy. Okay, okay, interesting. Not exactly what I pictured this guy to be doing. But then there's the moment where the gangster son has taken his car, taken the car to John Leguizamo. John Leguizamo freaks out, is like, you fucked up your do his dog. And then you're like, something's weird. And then finally you get this conversation between John Leguizamo and the kid's dad, between John Leguizamo and Vigo, and the shorthand of it, the absolute shorthand, lets you know the scale of who John Wick is. 
Aurelius speaking. I heard you struck my son. Yes, sir, I did. Yeah, may I ask why? Yeah, well, because he stole John Wick's car, sir, and uh, killed his dog. Oh. That oh. I have to say, in this movie, here I am a person who loves clever repartee. The greatest line anybody ever says in this movie is oh. Because in this movie, that's all you have to say. John Wick is like, go into a priest. And he's like, I should probably shoot this priest, I guess. And the priest goes like, don't do it. Don't do it. If you kill, you know, Vigo's going to kill me. And he's like, eh. Open it. Just don't do Myers to mean your motion stivus to Crete. Da, Magu. Code. Vigo will kill me. Uh-huh. The blasé nature. That is what makes this movie fascinating to me. Because, like, yes, I believe it teeters on a moral. Lots of, lots of just, like, dudes get killed because of who they work for. I will say no innocent people get killed. It's not like an Avengers movie. Innocent people are not getting crushed by buildings. Well, I mean, look, guilty by association, I guess. I mean, but Amy, we all deserve a chance to not get shot in the head, even if we work for a bad yeah. person. I mean, I mean, it's a, you're basically saying that anyone who works at Fox should be able to be, uh, you know, held accountable for anything bad that Rupert Murdoch did. I mean, like... Oh, God, if we are all held accountable for whatever billionaire owns us, I don't even know who probably owns me right up all the way at the top. It's terrifying. That's all I'm saying. These guys are schmoes. But here's what I will say... Um, about this, like this world and why I think this franchise has been so good is because unlike Death Wish and the slate of films that you just mentioned about Hitman, what I love about this is it starts small and gets bigger. Not every film is predicated by another killing of something that is close to him, right? Like, he doesn't go back home. Two starts immediately in an action sequence. It's like, okay, he got back this, now he's getting back his car. And then that brings him into the next part of it, and the next part of it brings him into the next part of it. Like, this is a story that is unfolding because of an inciting incident. And I think that because of this grounding, this is what I'm going back to, that grounding buys us an entry point in. So yes, is two better than one? Absolutely. Why? Because it's expanding the world. We didn't blow out the world and had nowhere to go. And I feel like a lot of these movies that you see, why do I want to see a sequel? What is there to come back for? Right? And I think that this movie inadvertently did that. Right? They set up enough stuff. They probably didn't have enough money to do everything they wanted. So they did a lot of shorthand and they were able to build that out and continue to build it out. And the world gets bigger as the story gets bigger, as the conflicts get bigger. And this, to me, is how you build a franchise. Unlike Creed, which I love, they always got to find a reason to get him back in the ring or for a reason that is personal. It's just not like this is the problem with sequels. And what I really love about this is it feels more like uh, forgive me for comparing it to Lord of the Rings, but it has that kind of a scope. It is a journey that we are watching. And I think that four will be a conclusion of this journey for better or for worse. Um, and I'm really curious to see how they kind of stick that landing, but it's not like, uh Oh, John Wick was on vacation and you stole his credit card. You shouldn't have done that. You know? And I think that that keeps him as a character that we like, the way I always heard this phrase, I met this actor, brilliant actor, 
very famous. I'm not going to tell you his name because it's, uh, I don't want to call him out. But it's Brad Pitt. It's Brad Pitt. He was wearing an ankle bracelet. And I kind of casually asked him, I was like, what, what's that about? And he said, man, sometimes you step in shit and it stinks. And I always think about that. And that's to me what happens with John Wick. Like John Wick stepped in shit and it stinks. Like, yes, he's getting his revenge. He's getting this. But because of all these events, all these inciting things, like it's getting messier and messier and messier. He is dealing with the weight of his impulsive actions. He's dealing with the weight of his grief. He's moving forward as an aggrieved man um, or aggrieved person, I should say. It doesn't make a difference if he's a man or woman. He's just moving forward in that thing. And I think that's what makes him so interesting. It's like, he can't stop himself. He can't, he can't let it go. And that's why I think John Wick 2 goes into John Wick 3 so beautifully because it's like, you know he can't, he shouldn't shoot that guy. He shouldn't shoot him. It's in the Continental. He knows what's at stake, but we know he has to. We know he has to because he needs to have that revenge, that closure for himself. He is unstable. Like John Wick is not in an emotionally good place. And I think because it, the movie is moving forward like this, it's really, to me, one of the most exciting characters because we're just watching him continually fuck up his life from a place of, I think, from a place of grieving. Wow. I can't believe not Brad Pitt did that. Maybe not Brad Pitt was uh, not David Leach. Didn't David Leach do like his stunt doubling in Fight Club, I think? He, like, oh, really? Was Pitt. Yeah, I think he like, yeah. I think like the background of these two directors was like, Leach was Pitt in Fight Club. Leach was maybe Matt Damon in Born Ultimatum. And Stileski, who was like a legit kickboxer, was like Brandon Lee in The Crow. Like they put his face oh, on wow. Brandon Lee's body after Brandon Lee died. Or Brent, no, wait, they put, reverse that. They put Brandon Lee's face on his body after Brandon Lee died. And I think he was also Keanu in The Matrix, which is like how he knew him in the first place. That said, I don't see John Wick as a character, honestly. And I want to, but I don't. I see John Wick as a cog. And that's not a slight on John Wick. It's just, I would say, like a reframing of how these movies work. You know, that I believe you when you say you're not supposed to care about him as a person. I don't. What I care about is how he gets like pinballed around. I love the stakes of like he has a marker in John Wick 2. And because he has this marker, he can't escape. And to get out of the marker, he finally kills the guy. Because he kills the guy, he has to go on the run. My God, that ending of 2 where just like suddenly you feel like all of New York is against him. Absolutely brilliant. And I remember watching that and being like, holy shit, this tiny little movie just got massive after two installments in a way that I found so thrilling. But ultimately, what I think of John Wick the Man is I think of him as like a pinball, a really damaging pinball in like a, a pinball machine. You know, he can knock over things. He can get points. He can destroy. His whole job is to like ricochet around and, and rule everything. But at the end of the day, he lives in the framework of the machine. He lives, you know... As they say in the movie, he lives by a code. And that code is the pinball machine. I know what you're thinking, Jonathan. We live by a code. Which is why I'm not the one telling you that a certain helicopter to a certain helipad is being fueled for a certain someone. Okay, well, all right. I will then say that I think you just disproved your other point about how does Alfie Allen not know? <laughs> how does Alfie Allen not know him? Well, case in point, 
everyone in New York City seems to be an assassin after John Wick. So I think you could probably fall within the lines there, right? Like, it seems like there's a lot of assassins out. Are you saying that, like, everybody would be as terrified if they killed Willem Dafoe's turtle? I think that there would be people, there would be hell to pay. I just think that there, I think that John Wick is maybe the best or one of the best. But if you call him Baba Yaga, uh, you know, if you call him that, maybe you don't know his name is John Wick. I, Baba Yaga is so funny, by the way, because like it's Slavic myth, like mythology. Baba Yaga is a lady. Like what I know about Baba Yaga is Baba Yaga is like this old witchy woman who lives in the forest, specifically in a hut that's built on chicken legs. So it's like giant chicken this. legs holding up a hut. And that's where Baba Yaga lives, which doesn't sound too terrifying to me and doesn't seem to match like this like mid-century modern house at all. I think it's very frightening. I will say this. Um, what did you think about the subtitles there? Because uh, they they obviously, many characters speak Russian in this film. And I love, well, I'm going to say, I love the use of subtitles. I love the use of bolding words, making them more interactive. It feels really alive to me. I like it too. I don't like the font itself, but I okay. like the idea. The font itself is like that kind of slanted, shiny font that to me just looks very 1999. And it was dated even like in 2014, feels like even more dated now. <laughs> but I love the concept of it. I love movies that play with subtitles. Crank 2, no, Crank 1. Yes. Crank 1 has one of the best subtitles jokes I've ever seen. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I want to say something, though, and I think that we're probably getting lost in our own pinball machine here, which is, let's call it as we see it. This movie isn't supposed to be The Matrix. This movie isn't supposed to be one of the greatest films ever made. It is supposed to be a holder for every fight that these guys couldn't do in every other movie. And that's why Keanu brings them on. That's why this partnership changes the landscape, I think, of action cinema. Uh, once again, Keanu doing it one more time. And he brings these guys in, and it's like, what is the easiest, simplest story that can hold the best fucking fight scenes? And this is why I think this movie is good, because they know that. It's like, if we just give it enough, if we just give it enough gravitas, we get it. He's upset. His wife is dead. His dog is dead. This is why he's going. Like, I'm not trying to sit here and say the, the writing, it was a tone poem to grief. I would say that I was surprised that they spent so much time there, but it really is just, it's the difference between bringing your own bag to the supermarket and getting a bag there. And this is the bag that you get at the supermarket, right? It's 
going to work just fine. It's not the nicest bag. You're not going to reuse it a million times, but it's going to work fine. And what they've done is they keep on making that bag better and better. But the bag just holds the premise so we can get to see what we get to see, which is this amazing opening fight scene that allows us to go, holy shit, this is the movie? After 30 minutes of watching this guy cry, watching, you know, uh, videos on his phone and, 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 and playing with a dog, this is what we're getting. Like, the amount of people he kills in that opening scene is shocking. It's in the dark. It is, you know, long shots. Like you said, no CGI, fun, exciting John Wick is not a superhuman, even though he does put on a superhero outfit before he becomes John Wick. And I love that idea. And, you know, his superhero three piece suit. I do. And by the way, two different ones as well. But that idea of him like, okay, now I'm turning my mind back to this other person that I was. And now he's in this world. He gets hurt. I don't know if he gets hurt because he's been out of the game for four years or he gets hurt because he's being reckless or he gets hurt because he's just not unstoppable. He is not unstoppable. He is not somebody who could take a bullet and keep on going. Like, yes, he takes hits. He does wear a bulletproof vest. But that he goes from like John Wick 1 getting absolutely battered, seeing him even battered in the first scene, staying that battered, ending John Wick 1 totally battered and immediately has to try to survive John Wick 2 before he even like has a chance to take aspirin. Very funny. Well, he's got those pills in his pocket. But I mean, but like, like, just want to talk about that. Like this film as a holder for great stunts, like like Harold Lloyd, like Jackass, like this film is just giving us enough. And I, I will go back to the 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 those people that we talked about, the Charlie Chaplins, the Harold Lloyds. And obviously, number two opens up with a shot of those kind of silent films on this projected on the side of the building. Like that's what this is. This is a stunt movie held together by a very thin plot that I think works because Keanu, I think, does some of the best dramatic acting. He is done, and maybe it's because of the lack of dialogue. Maybe I think he's actually a very good actor and has gotten better, oddly, as he's gotten older. But I think almost when he is at less words, he can emote better. I think you get a lot more out of his face than you get with words. I mean, I do like the sense. I want to ask you this. Best fight in all of John Wick from one to three. Oh, wow. I, I don't know if I'm fully up on all of them to be able to say, like, definitively. I can tell you the best fight in this film in my opinion is i really love the opening house fight because it it is like this entire film incredibly pared down like you know the colors get brighter the lights get more interesting the shots get more exciting as the films go on and i remember certain things whether it's you know wick fighting boban you know I, they all kind that's of that's my favorite one that's oh, what i was hoping you'd say john I wick lo- 3 in the book stacks yes. killing boban with a book I, amazing I, I love that one and i think also in john wick 3 is the one where the knives are being thrown out of the case and oh, like oh yeah he- that one's so good i have to say paul i once took a self defense class And the very first thing they taught us on the very first day was how to disable somebody with a pencil. This was our guy's big tip. He's like, you carry around a pencil, the little wooden kind, the kind that you sharpen, not a mechanical one. If somebody Fs with you, you take that pencil, you jam it into their belly, and then their muscles are going to clench like automatically. And then at the horizon point, I guess you would say of their clenched muscles, you snap the pencil off so they can't get it out. And then you punch them on top of the broken pencil. And he's like, they won't be able to come after you. They won't be able to get up. And they're going to have to go to the hospital for lead poisoning. Wow. 
Love this. Just saying. Useful information. I don't carry a pencil with me, but maybe I should. He said you should practice on a watermelon. Oh, geez, you're really, I gotta tell June about this. Those two are the best. John Wick at three has my favorite fights. John Wick two is my favorite movie. John Wick one is fine. But I do like that first fight that you're talking about. I think that's my favorite one. Cause like the club one has the cool lighting, but he's really just like exasperated and very execution-y, yes. I would say. It's a gunfight. It's a gunfight. And one, the very first fight in one, the very first home invasion fight is so well choreographed. And you're right. He does not seem superhuman in it. He does not seem like he could do anything. He just seems really, really, really fucking angry. Yes. And that's great. And he kind of tears through his own house. And when you bring the fight to his house, what else is he going to do? He's going to have to do it. He's going to have to just fight. And it's like he's fighting for his life. Not like I'm gunning through everybody who like has a 401k from Vigo. Well, you know, I think that there's something about this, which is a proof of concept. It's a screenwriter who I think wrote about like 80 scripts, never got any of them made. You know, as you can tell, Keanu takes his script, says, change it fully. Again, I like the bones, but put new skin on it. And then he gives it to, you know, these directors who he's worked with. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Even change it more. Like, And this is to me the reason why we're here that first fight scene. It's like, this is our chance to show you. Because in a weird way, I think the fights start the best and become the worst. You know, like, and and, and even the worst is still pretty good, but like, I don't think there's a topping of that first fight scene. No, not really. Because like, the Perkins one is pretty good. I like that he's fighting her in his underwear, which I hear is like a Keanu move. Right. He was like, I need to be extra vulnerable in that scene. Have me be in my underwear. I'm pretty sure that like he said that Adrian Polacki, you know, who plays Miss yes. Perkins, that she like need him in the balls a couple times. I like that. I get the vulnerability. But yeah, they I mean, do that's get how, I mean, to weaker me, and weaker. They become almost more like punchlines. You know, like when he shows up at like the Alfie hideout, there's kind of the gag that he shoots the guy who's playing video games and is playing video games so loudly that he doesn't know that he's about to get actually assassinated like one of his video games for real. And then there's kind of the gag when Alfie's like, but it was just a fucking dog. And he like shoots him before he can say the word dog. That's all just execution punchlines, kind of like da dun dun But the movie does something interesting too, which is it doesn't play into the meta. He doesn't have punchlines per se. He has punctuations. But I, I do believe that sometimes- Punctuations. You know, these, shooting the priest in the knee when he's like, "Don't kill me, big right. situation." And you know, and it's, it's setting fire to all the money. Like he is very much like the Joker uh, in in Nolan's Batman. Like he's watch, he's basically setting the world on fire, and and he doesn't care because he's got one thing to do. Most of this movie is gunfights. And I agree. The Adrian Pilecki scene is good. I actually like Adrian Pilecki in the room with that other assassin. I, I, I think that scene is a very good scene as Oh, well. Harry, I feel so sorry for him because he's just like there next door. I know. Trying to get some sleep. He wears sock garters. Yep. Have you ever met a person who wears sock garters? The only time I ever did that was when I was in a high school play where I was playing an old man. I felt like that was what I was supposed to be doing. What is the point? Like, did they So your socks to don't fall socks? down. I like it. I like did it. Did socks I, used to fall down? Uh, socks still fall down as as a man with a, a more defined calf muscle. They're not always going to stay up there. What they don't just hang like, on. I would have thought if you had more muscle, then the sock would be tighter at the top. No, because you you basically down. you break the um you break the elasticity because you're constantly stretching it. Oh, 
But by the way, I just want to give a shout out to Clark Peters. Clark Peters, uh, you might know him from The Wire. I loved him in The Wire. I'm so excited to see him in this as well. Oh, really? Like uh, a tear of Wire actors between us and Creed. Huh? Oh, I mean, of course, it's New York. It's this time. Mm. Everyone had just seen The Wire, so I feel like all these guys are getting all this great work. Um, but I guess what I really like about this movie is they start off with their strongest fight, their biggest fight, and the they end with their most personal fight, their smallest fight. You know, he has this final fight and he doesn't punctuate it. You know, the way that he kills the son, like you said, is so quick and dismissive. The movie's building up. This is the guy who fucking killed his dog and took his car, started all of this. You think that the movie would be building up to that. And it it's, I love how nothing it is and how emotionless he is like he doesn't give him a speech like god damn you you took the only thing that i wanted like no boom like you said right before he says dog and i love that yeah and there's 30 minutes left in the movie and and then you're like well where is it gonna go now and now you know well now he's up against somebody who actually is at least maybe as smart or can give him a run for his money this this idiot alfie allen was not gonna do anything but Vigo is going to give him a run for his money, you know, and Vigo is a bastard. I mean, Vigo also, these are two guys who also just won't back up. They just won't back up at all. And they, and this is what happens at the end. And you get this fight scene where he leaves Vigo for dead, but Vigo is not dead. Like Vigo, I mean, I guess he will die. He will bleed out, but it's not like you don't get the satisfaction of like, and I fucking broke his neck. We see so many solid kills in this movie. Like, really, like, there's no chance that this person's getting back up. And with Vigo... He kind of talks like he thinks he's getting back up. Yeah. Good seeing you, Don. Yeah. Good seeing you. And can I say the moment of that fight that actually does make me gasp, even though, yeah, stunt-wise it's a little underwhelming... It's that John Wick is fighting this guy. They've got the knifey knife. And then to get control of the knife back, John Wick grabs the knife and stabs it into himself. I mean, I guess there's your metaphor for like self-inflicting all this pain upon yourself, how to escape your trauma. Do you just need to keep opening wounds to not feel the original pain or whatever they're trying to say there? Just like, oh my God, the willingness to stab yourself in order to not get stabbed again. Well, I also feel like it shows you what kind of fighter he is, because at a certain point you start to forget, like, is Vigo truly competition for him? Like, not really. We've just seen him take down, like, tons of people who are younger, tons of people who are in better shape than Vigo, right? And there's something about this fight that's really interesting. Like, it's, you know, first of all, they're just going to use their fists. Then Vigo cheats by bringing out a knife. And then you get to see like a little bit like we talked about in our Creed 3 episode, like you get to see that idea of like, oh, this is how he fights. He's like, the only way to win is to go through it. Like he's like, he's not unstoppable. He's not uh, like a guy who at this point in the movie who is injured this bad can just take down this guy immediately. He's got to do math in his head to figure out how he can beat him. And I love that. I just feel like it it makes this movie really down and dirty. It reminds me of Mel Gibson fighting Gary Busey on the lawn at the end of Lethal Weapon 1, which is, a, I think, an amazing fight scene, also in the rain, you know, uh, on a front lawn. 
but like you want to see these guys brutally like it's personal it's personal at this point even though to your point about the script it's a little le- like it's personal i guess now because vigo's like well you killed my son so now i need to kill you and basically yeah. if anything it kind of reminds me of like ridley scott's the last duel or something like mm. here are the gentlemanly rules since you have killed my son therefore i must kill you no the the bloodlessness of the emotion is kind of fascinating yeah and i think you know it's interesting because these characters are both willing to lose it all for the love of these people in their life right and, and these are two guys who are in a world where nothing is personal you know these these movies are about brutal killers who don't have to think about what they feel and yet the final battle is about two people just coming from an emotional place at their like their own destruction is based in this and even the betrayal of Willem Dafoe that causes him to be so brutally beaten by Vigo you know to be like I need to make him feel this so to me I love that that moment and John Wick is content to die you know there's something about that moment that's kind of amazing it's like well yeah I did it now I'm I got nothing else. And yeah. and that and to me is really something kind of like screwy about like the moral logic. Not screwy like bad or immoral. Because I, I mean, in all of their drafts of this movie at the beginning, that was their big fear, right? Like we're going to kill 84 people over a puppy. Is that on its own fundamentally immoral? They're worried about that. I hear that point, And I find what's intellectually interesting about this movie is how the construction of it gets you on the side of things where you're like, where even is morality at this point? You know, like when William Defoe is captured by Vigo's men and he knows he's going to die, he absolutely knows he's not getting out of that. There's no hope for him in that scene. He's already hurt. He's already, he's already pretty fucked up, but he's like, I will die, but I'm going to take down as many of these guys with their 401ks from Vigo as I can before I die. You're sort of like, this feels heroic. This feels noble. Is it noble to bring more people down with you when you are already doomed? I don't really know. Well, I, th- I don't really know. It makes me feel queasy. Well, I think that there's something interesting about taking the script body count from 11 to 84, right? There is so much death in this movie that it ceases to mean anything. So to start the movie on a fight scene, uh, taking out the one where he is beaten in the first home invasion and and really just focusing on the second home invasion. Like, to start the movie on literally faceless people, 12 people just being brutally killed. We don't know them. We don't know anything about how they look, their age, anything. Boom, 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 boom. Like, we are, all of a sudden, we are not in tune with anything. The only two people that have true faces, uh, you know, besides, like, uh, Dean Winters, who's, like, what, Vigo's attorney? I don't know. I feel so sorry for Dean Winters in this movie because I've just seen him in too many commercials and I know that that's like the brutal trade you make when you're a commercial guy. But like when Dean Winters here gets like hit by a car or something, I'm like, well, this is what your insurance companies have prepared you for this whole time, man. And if you're asking me, by the way, Amy, did you pull a Dean Winters Mayhem Allstate commercial? Absolutely, I did. And here it is. Oh, boy. And if you got the wrong home insurance coverage, you could be coughing up the cash for this. Can't be knocking on anyone making a living, Amy. I'll tell you this much. Uh, he brings to me, I think, a little bit too much comedy to this movie in a weird way. Um, but Does he bring comedy or is it just his face? 
Is I it just think like that he's a little like there's something about everybody who's really refined. And I think they want to make him like this lawyer, like, hey, what the fuck is going on? But he's also <laughs> like a little too dirty to have that kind of reaction. Uh, like, I don't know. But I guess what I'm saying is to take a movie where we get so caught up in faceless death, where we're, we're not even meeting people, we're just killing them. And to end the movie on these two men who are coming from a place of grief, I love. And I think like thematically, that's really beautiful. I also think it's worth pointing out that, you know, there's a thing in all these movies, and you said it before, you know, in all these movies, whenever they're fighting, it's like, they always say like, I'll be seeing you. And we talked about this idea, this code, this honor. And I think the idea is like, we're all going to hell. How we're going to go to hell will be maybe today, maybe tomorrow, but I'm not a good guy. You're not a good guy. We will be in hell eventually. Today may not be my day. And there's something that I think is kind of beautiful and poetic that unites this entire thing. John Wick could be Vigo. You know, uh, Adrian Pilecki could be John Wick. Like there is a, there's something about this crew of people that are constantly shifting affiliations, but there is a code of conduct. And I think this code of conduct which we just get a flavor of. And I love so much with Adrian Pilecki breaking the code of conduct because she's going to get more money if she kills him inside the Continental, which is illegal, which we now know. And then she pays the ultimate price when she's like kind of gunned down in Central Park. Um, we really open that up into two. And we know that that's like the the one rule. You can't break that rule. And John Wick does. And then you have to also respect that everyone in the city is trying to kill him because you know that's the only, it's the Gremlins rule. Don't feed him after midnight. And they do, you know, he does. It's like, it's your fault, bro. You know it. And so I think that there's something really interesting about the beginning of John Wick 3. It's like, well, you you brought this on yourself. I don't feel the same way. Like, I get it why you did it. But I like that this movie really relies on code and honor and this shared idea that we're all pieces of shit. We all respect each other. And I'm just as honored if I kill you or if you kill me. It's like we all respect and honor a code. I mean, I think that's why it's really good that they cast Ian McShane as kind of the king mm. of this world, you know, because sure, he's got the British accent. He even sounds like the king of this world. But like he brings in authority to everything that his character Winston says. You know, I just pulled like a clip of him talking at random at the, the time that we meet him for the first time. But in the confidence that he talks in a room surrounded by killers, you just sense like, even John Wick cannot cross this guy. And when he does, you're like, well, there's gonna be hell to pay. Have you returned to the fold? Just visiting. Have you thought this through? I mean, chewed down to the bone. You got out once. You dip so much as a pinky back into this pond. You may well find something reaches out and drags you back into its depths. Where do I find him? And Ian McShane really does have a gravitas, but I, I think what you're saying is like this idea that he's, in many respects, like they always say like, you know, the, the, the fish stinks from the head and Ian McShane, if anything, no matter what he feels is loyal to the code. So by him being so observant of the code, it makes him in many ways, one of the most 
respectable characters here because he's the only one that we don't see swayed, you know, throughout the course of all of these movies. I mean, maybe Harry, uh, but even Harry should have called and reported Adrian Pilecki. Like people were breaking rules. They were making side deals. And I feel like that's not what Ian McShane does, unless I'm forgetting something major that happens uh, because I haven't yeah. watched two and but three. But I mean, maybe that means that in a way there is no code to begin with. Because we kind of just see the code get broken all the time from the beginning. Everybody does what they're not supposed to. Like, it makes me think that the only way to have a satisfying, chaotic movie is if you have rules in place that your chaos can destroy. So the more rules they put in place, the more you get to be like, oh, that's more chaos. But also the more rules that you have in place, you also don't have to make a moral decision of, is this good? Is this bad? It's just against the rules. Like, okay, were you speeding? Yes, I was speeding. End of question. Like, does it make a difference? Like, there's no like, well, I was speeding because of this or I was doing, nope, that's the rule. The rule is that you broke the rule. And I think that 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 black and white nature, even though the characters may break it and maybe some get away with it and some don't, but the black and white nature of the world allows our characters or us as the audience to kind of know what we're feeling. Like it allows us to be like, okay, I'm on the side of the rule breaker or I'm on the side of the rules. Like I believe in this. And I think that that's maybe, you know, to me, I'm watching John Wick too when he's in the club going, don't do this. Don't do this. What the fuck? Don't do this. I don't want him to do it. I don't feel like he has to, but he does. And then for John Wick 3, I feel differently about him. Not that I don't think he's a, a worse dude, but I'm also like, well, it is what it is. And I think that that's, I don't know, I, very few films are like that. I think movies love to live in gray areas. And this movie is like, we have the rules. You can choose to follow or dis, you know, or not follow them, but there's no gray here. The rule has no emotional sway. I know we talked a lot about the rules, the world, the characters, the the emotional construct of it. But I do want to just talk to you about the difference in filmmaking and action filmmaking that this movie brought to us. I, I mentioned it earlier, like obviously The Matrix started a whole new wave of action. This, I think, reboots it once again. And so many films now are out of this mold or action films are out of this mold, you know, whether it is, you know, films from these actual filmmakers like Bob Odenkirk and Nobody, um, or we're just copying the the kind of brutality. And you, you see that in a movie like Plane with Gerard Butler. I, I feel like this was a good thing because I don't get tired of it. Like, I can't get tired of good fights. Like, good fights are more fun to watch than, you know, it's sort of like, oh, there may be a movie with a better fight or a least better fight, but you're never going to get bored of this. It's like, how do we up the action? And as long as we're not using CGI and we're just getting great people together, it feels like action films kind of exist in a nice area right now. You know, comparatively to something like Fast and Furious, which I love, but like John Cena can run through a brick wall and be fine. Like, you know, or, you know, in The Rock and Vin Diesel punch each other, they both are jettisoned back like they've just touched, you know, uh, you know, like they're magnets. You know, so I don't know. I, I feel like what they brought to film at a time when like Marvel movies are coming out and CGI is even better 
is this intense realism back to old world stunts and f- effects that I think have really, you know, made a giant impact on action cinema across the board. I mean, what do you think? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm totally on board with that. I'm totally on board with, you know, hunting for actors who can do like, as Keanu did, 90% of his fight scenes here. I mean, to me, that's like Michelle Yeoh and Supercop, you know, fantastic. I'm always going to be on board of that. I like what it did stylistically, too, in terms of, you know, the editor here, like Elizabeth Ronaldsutter. She doesn't come from action films. When they hired her to do this movie, she was like, well, let me tell you what I don't like about action films. I don't like punches that are so close you can't see what's happening. I don't like it when the action's shot really murky so it looks dramatic. I don't like it when you edit so fast that you can't see what's happening. You know, she's like, I come from dance. I like long action takes where you can see everything that's happening. And they're like, perfect, that's what we want too. And that style I love, it's kind of anti-born. I also like that when you kind of hear her talk a bit about editing this movie and and, and Leach and Chad uh, talk about it too, you get the sense that Elizabeth kind of battled them, that she cut 39 minutes out of this movie. Some of those minutes they really wanted. And she was like, it slows it down too much. You are slowing your movie down. And she just snip, 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 snip. And I can probably guess that like some of the things she snipped explained this world in a way that I just like it being revealed in the second film, you know, or maybe I didn't even need it explained at all if we just ended it at John Wick. So I appreciate that because I think movies have a tendency to be overcut, too rapid and overexplained. And so her gravitas, very grateful for that. I, I am too. And I'm grateful to see these scenes in movies like Atomic Blonde, the stairwell fight, which is, I think, amazing. I love to see this kind of style used in a more, to your term, B movie, like Violent Night. You know, these, and these obviously are produced and kind of under the banner of these, these guys who started this thing. Like everyone's kind of pays homage to this film. And I think everyone's doing it in very different ways and fun ways. And they don't all feel... There's a way of like, I think there was a sameness to post Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon and Matrix that I started to get bored of. It's a, it's an easy thing to get bored of. And this does feel more that like the way the that- the Bourne style. Yes, Ooh. and the Bourne style, yes. And and the way that we uh, kind of felt about Supercop. Supercop ages better because it doesn't feel so stylistically stagnant or overdone, you know? And, and it, it does harken back to what I love about a movie like Die Hard. Heroes who get hurt. Heroes who get hurt and who and heroes who just who get scared and can and and like really you get to see them throw a punch and it's sloppy. Sometimes John Wick is sloppy and that's okay. And when his body gets thrown like a rag doll, you're like, oh shit! Like it, like it just brings some stakes to it. And I also sometimes he's like, I can't get out of this unless I bite your thumbs. Okay, sure. And 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 I love this idea too, where. You know, I know we said, you know, we've gone back and forth about whether it's too much or too little, but even the doctor who's fixing up John Wick, he's like, well, I know you're not going to rest. So, you know, it's like, we're not having those moments like, hey, if you fight one more time, you're going to die. Like this guy is not there to be prescriptive. Even the cops are familiar with it. Even yes. the cops at the very beginning talk to him in a shorthand where you're like, how big is this world? Evening, John. Evening, Jimmy. Noise complaint. Noise complaint. You uh, working again? No, just sorting some stuff out. Oh, well. I'll leave you be then. 
Good night, John. Good night, Jimmy. Thomas Sadowski there. <laughs> Thomas Sadowski. Oh, speaking of cameos, how happy were you to see uh, Magic Mike's Tarzan Kevin Nash show up as the door guy? I love that. And by the way, Tarzan, the smartest guy, goes down to Miami, starts to strip, he learns his lesson. Yeah. I mean, they, Kevin Nash said in an interview, you know, they have that kind of cryptic back and forth right before John Wick comes and like kills everybody. Hello, Francis. Mr. Vig. The tip of who deal? 20 kilograms. Da. A peachy lad. Are you here on business, sir? Afraid so, Francis. Why don't you take the night off? Thank you, sir. Kevin Nash has said, that is a code, man. How did y'all not get that that is a code? What human being can lose 60 kilograms and still look as big as me? How big do you think this guy was? 60 kilograms is a lot of weight. What, what he's talking about there is he's letting John Wick know that there are 60, you know, 401k guys in red shirts that he needs to go kill to prepare for 60. And it's by giving him that information that John Wick decides to let him live. And look, I, I love the code of, of reservation for 12. Again, all that sort of stuff I love is just, again, we don't need to know how it came up. This is, to me, the argument that people make about the midichlorians and stuff like that. We don't need to know everything. There should be more parts of the world that are left unexplored. I think that that's why we need to get out of New York at the end of two and open it up to the world in number three. And I don't know where number four is going, but I think the thing that I was most surprised at was looking at the runtime of this movie. It's lean. Going back to your comment about the editor, an hour and 44 minutes. It's a lean action film. And 30 of those minutes, there's no action going on whatsoever no, and now we're talking about four is twice as long two and hours and 40 it's yeah. going to be twice as good wow that's interesting because all the reviews are saying it is like all the reviews are saying it is the best it is the it is the most explosive it goes by you want it to go on longer and that to me is shocking uh so i very excited to go a little bit earlier get myself a cherry Coke, sit down and, and see what this movie has in store for me. I mean, I'll be watching it. I will be watching it. But man, being like, it was almost three hours and I loved it. Feels like, please, John Wick, keep punching me in the face. But maybe like, this is what we're talking about. Like you had two of your favorite fight scenes in number three. Maybe there's a chance to do more. That's true. I think because like three ended on to me such a boring note of like, Halle Berry and the dogs. I like yeah. really checked out once it was Halle Berry and the dogs. I don't have that sense of anticipation I did at the end of two. I, I will tell you, I also found three to be a little more bloated than I would have liked. In watching it in the theater, I was like, okay, I'm getting I'm getting in that zone where I'm where it's challenging me a little bit. So much so that I don't really even remember how it ends. Me neither, actually. I remember sequences of it. So I am curious. Have they learned that lesson? I don't think that they're just making it long to make it long. And you know that if they could have made it into two parts, the studio would have loved to do that for a Kill Bill like one and two thing. But I feel like they felt like they needed to release it like this. So I'm, I am, I will give all my faith over to this creative team. I don't know if I'll give them all my faith, but I will give them okay. my time and attention. All right. I'll <laughs> take it all. And you know what? John Wick will continue past four. He just confirmed at South by Southwest that he will be uh, appearing in the Ana de Armas, uh, like spinoff film ballerina and he might even appear in the continental i will tell you amy that i had um 
one of the funniest auditions of my life where I got to audition to play a character in the um, prequel series of John Wick. I auditioned to be the guy, the cleaner, uh, that guy uh, who came and uh, cleaned up his house for him. And I looked nothing like him and I'm significantly taller. And they basically said, and the audition, they were like, just be the most David Patrick Kelly you could be. They said, familiarize yourself with all of his work. I look nothing. I have no idea how they did it. I don't know who got that part. God bless him. But it was really funny to be watching this small scene that he's in and being like, okay, I have to base a whole character on this. They really wanted you to like embody that. And it's like, well, it's also like I'm playing the young version of him. So I don't even know how to do it, but it was, it was uh, (laughs) a real challenge, but fun to rewatch that scene a million times and try to make choices based on a character that you would never even think would have a fucking lead role in a prequel series. By the way, speaking of like the continental, that building, you know, by the way, is on wall street in New York. It is called the beaver building which I thought was very funny. Uh-huh. And it used to be not the center of uh, assassin killing, but it used to be the center of the cocoa exchange. So if you want to buy and sell some hot cocoa, if you want some rules about wow. like where cocoa can be traded, that was the building that you used to go to. And also, by the way, the 100% for John Wick did not last. It did get some reviews. A lot of the reviews that didn't like it, you know, were sort of like this one from the Detroit News. Keanu Reeves shoots some people in John Wick. Then he shoots some more people. Then he shoots some more. Yes, on occasion, he punches someone a few times before shooting them. And the violence is garnished with sporadic knife play. But mostly it's kind of playing bang, bang. If that sounds great, go see the movie. If not, congratulations on aspiring to better things. Wow. Well, right now, just so you know, John Wick 1 is uh, hanging at an 86. Uh, John Wick 2 is hanging at an 89. And John Wick Chapter 3 is also at 89. And uh, we'll see where we're going to get out with John Wick 4. We shall see. But while I'm in a moment of really changing my mind, exposing my weaknesses, looking for my vulnerabilities, trying to heal myself, I said at the beginning of this episode, oh, Hitman movies, whatever, who cares? But I feel like this is an opening to do a Hitman movie that I deeply, deeply love, a Hitman movie that I thought about this entire Oscar run, which is, of course, Martin McDonough's In Bruges. I'm very excited to do this. What an interesting choice. Uh, I'm excited to talk about this film because I think a lot of people I've talked to did not like uh, the Banshees of Inisherin. They found it to be boring. I found it to be really funny. And people always want the experience they had in In Bruges. So I'm excited to go back and rewatch it to see if it holds up as good as I thought, even though I've been very happy with my experiences uh, post-Bruges. I have liked all of my McDonald's post-Bruges but I have never gotten that hit of pure love that I felt for Bruges. So I'm excited to go back to Bruges. This is a movie that I like treasure and almost never let myself watch because I love it so much. It's one of those ones that I hold into a sacred vault. And so to crack open this vault means a lot to me. I can't wait. All right, well, that'll be next week. Here is the trailer for In Bruges. What is it you've done, Raymond? Murder, father. Why did you murder someone, Raymond? For money. Who did you murder for money, Raymond? You, father. After I killed them, I walked home to await instructions. Get to Bruges. 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 Where's that? It's in Belgium. For two weeks, in Bruges, in a room like this, with you? No way. Been to the top of the tower. 
The guidebook says it's a must-see. Well, you ain't going up there. Why? It's all windy stairs. I'm not being funny. What exactly are you trying to say? They're a bunch of elephants. Mr. Blakely? Yes? You have a message. Number one, why aren't you in when I told you to be in? You better be in when I call again or there'll be now to pay up. I'm telling you. He swears a lot, doesn't he? Let's go out. Go out where? The pub. Yes. Well, Amy, until next week, but a big thank you to our producer, Josh Richmond, our associate producer, Jessica Cisneros, our engineer, Casey Holford, our EPs, Cody Fisher and Colin Anderson, our MVP, Molly Reynolds, our theme song by Michael Cassidy, our fan art by Kim Troxall. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, rate, review, and follow us on Apple and also on Amazon. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can talk about all these movies on the Paul Shear Discord. Just go to discord.gg slash Paul Shear. Unspooled t-shirts are available at tpublic.com slash unspooled, but you can also get your very own deck of unspooled playing cards, which are absolutely gorgeous, all designed by Kim Troxell at podswag.com. Just find the unspooled show and you'll see it right there. You can hear past episodes of the show and bonuses like screen test on Stitcher Premium. And for the official API, that's the Paul and Amy Institute list of our favorite films that we've ever done from the show, you can head on over to unspooledpod.com. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.